success in a career is what you do on an ongoing basis, your persistence, your accomplishments at every step of the way. Sometimes there'll be obstacles, sometimes there'll be setbacks, but you sort of define it for yourself over the years. If you're persistent and you keep pursuing your goals, you will find a way, you will be successful. In today's episode, we have an inspiring conversation with Dr. L. Deary, a world-renowned physician scientist and compassionate oncologist. As a trailblazer in cancer research and patient care, we'll delve into his career journey, the impact of his research on the lives of countless patients, and how to lead a fulfilling life with two critical ingredients. Let's get started on Leadership Unboxed with Dr. L. Deary. Thank you, doctor, for joining us today. My pleasure. So to start off, can you tell us about your journey in becoming a renowned physician, scientist? Yeah. So I grew up in a family of physicians, lots and lots of physicians overseas. I was born overseas. My parents immigrated to the United States in the early 70s and the bigger part of the family, late 60s, early 70s. And we landed in New York. I went to a junior high and began high school in New York City. And then we moved down to Florida where I finished high school. And while I was in high school in, in Miami, Florida, I started to participate in a lab research program that was down there in 11th grade that basically placed students in different labs within the city, including at the university. And I ended up in a lab at the medical school. And uh, that was the first exposure to research because, you know, my background and my parents were doctors and I had thought about becoming a doctor, mostly because when you grow up around doctors, you think, you know, that's what I'm going to probably end up doing. But the research really was, was very foreign. What is research? How, how is it done? Like, why do people do it and what comes of it? And so I started to learn about biochemistry and became interested in designing experiments and carrying them out and getting results. And really over the subsequent years, when I was in college, I continued to do research and learned about the, the importance of asking good questions. And so I found that when I was in college, I had a lot of questions about things I was learning about and often the professors didn't have an answer or actually that started in high school in the science classes that often asked questions about things just logically about what I was hearing. And they often like just to probe with some depth into what was being taught. And one of the things that has stayed with me over the years is really the importance of asking good questions especially if you're in the field of medicine, healthcare, or biomedical research, it gives things more relevance and more meaning. And certainly in medicine, a lot of it is detective work and asking good questions there of, of patients. Uh, but in research, it's asking important, relevant questions about problems that people face. And so I, I continued to do research in medical school. I was in an MD, PhD program. And then when I went to do residency in Baltimore, I took a little bit of time during medical residency and got exposed to molecular biology, which in the late eighties was really the thing to learn biomedical research, you know, people were starting to clone things and recombinant DNA technology and PCR came along and 
you know, so, so that's how I got started. And then I had completed my training and had some very good experiences during that time that basically cemented my interest in becoming a physician scientist. Part of it was keeping options open. Like, you know, maybe if I didn't succeed at research, I could always practice medicine. And thankfully I haven't come to that point, but it's, it's always there. I actually enjoy both very much and they're each rewarding in their own way. You know, the practice of medicine and, and the conduct of research. Thank you for that. And specifically in the field of oncology, was there something that gravitated you towards that specific disease area? Yes, there was. I would say in medical school, I became interested in medicine just because there were a lot of puzzles. It was one of those specialties where you actually can help people get better, which is not true of all medical specialties. And then during medical residency, uh, some of the subspecialties of medicine are focused on specific organ systems. And I always liked oncology because it took care of the whole patient. There was a little bit of primary care, internal medicine and oncology, and you could assume the care of patient while you were treating them for, for their cancer. So I, I enjoyed that and I thought about doing other things, but it seemed to also be a good choice for someone who is interested in research because there were a lot of opportunities, a lot of unanswered questions, um, needs, people were suffering and this was a good area to be in. And I would happily do it again. That's fantastic. And. As you mentioned, experimenting, asking a lot of really good questions along the way, I'm sure that you had to look to others to help guide or answer some of those questions. Who were some of your mentors and what type of lessons did you pick up along the way? Yeah, I've had many mentors, including when I was in high school, when I was in college, I had a thesis advisor who taught me a lot about um, hard work and success in science. You would always say things along the lines of ideas are a dime a dozen. It's really execution. And the more things you try, in the end, if you try 10 different things and one of them works, you don't really think about all the things that didn't work. You just pursue what, what is leading you to solve problems and answer important questions. That was Dr. So, my thesis advisor. He passed away a few years ago. He was a physician scientist, hematologist. I worked a little bit with Dr. Balin, who's a leader in the field of epigenetics. Uh, when I was at Johns Hopkins, this was during medical residency. And that was a fun experience with him because, you know, in my PhD, I had learned about biochemistry and when I was during my residency, I took three months off to learn molecular biology, which I felt like I needed for my future career. And it was, it was enjoyable because he took his uh, position as how can I help you do what you need to do? He'd always ask me for a wish list you know, make up a wish list and I'll try to help you make this, these things happen. And that was just a fun way to, to do research with him. And then I worked with Dr. Vogelstein at Johns Hopkins and, um, we made some amazing discoveries at the time that have really changed our understanding of cell division and how tumor suppressor genes work. And working with him, he would always challenge me in terms of, okay, you've done so-and-so. What are you going to do next? Okay. So never rest on your laurels. Always be thinking about what you're going to do after that. 
And he also helped me recognize some of my own special attributes, one of which is persistence. I'm a very persistent person and I learned that. And then over the years in doing research, I think if you really believe in in an idea and a direction and a path, if it's grounded in, you know, a great scientific rationale or a understanding of biology, then keep pursuing it. I think sometimes we all need to know when to quit. And that that's always a challenge, but persistence does pay off. And sometimes it takes a really long time. And you look at successful tests and and physician scientists, and all you see is a success. But al- along the way, there are a lot of disappointments and a lot of difficulties, hardships, challenges, never a dull moment, but persistence and just getting up and keep going all the time overcomes that. Thank you for sharing. And as you talk about being persistent and going through some of those challenges, what's something in your career when you look back that you're proud of? And if you could kind of share with us a particularly challenging situation that you faced and how you overcame it. Yeah, maybe I can start. I mean, there were a couple of really important advances that were made in my career. One happened when I was a postdoctoral fellow and we were asking questions about how does a tumor suppressor gene like P53 work? And methodically, we learned that it binds to DNA. We figured out what it can bind to and then we started asking, what does it regulate? Like it, it turns on other genes and, you know, what are those genes and how do they function to help this tumor suppressor do what it needs to do? And that was the discovery of P21 WAF1, which has some similarity to my first name, but I think it's mostly because at the time, nobody cared what you named a new gene because most Nobody really thought it was going to be important, but this one turned out to be really, really important, which is how our cells respond to damage and stress by activating the P53 protein. And it turns on this P21 gene, which basically signals cells to stop dividing so that they can recover, whether it's by repairing their DNA or, you know, basically recovering from the stresses that happen. So, you know, for a number of years, and this was in the early 90s, I thought this would be the most important thing I would ever do in my life, scientifically, which is kind of depressing. But when I started my own career, I became interested in discovering more genes regulated by this tumor suppressor. And as a medical oncologist, I wanted to find genes that killed cells because uh, naively, and perhaps maybe not so naively at the time, you know, a dead cancer cell is not one that's going to grow or relapse or, or shorten someone's life. And that was the goal to kill tumor cells. So we started looking for genes regulated by this P53 tumor suppressor that could kill tumor cells. And we discovered something called death receptor at the time in the mid to late nineties. And that was my entry point to studying the connection between tumor suppressor genes and our innate immune system. Because this receptor, which is found on tumor cells is engaged by ligands, which are basically factors that are released or maybe bound to immune cells. And they come and they kill the tumor cells as part of suppressing cancer. And it was important in that regard, as well as how chemotherapy kills tumor cells. So that was sort of an opening 
to what happened for many years after that. But that basic knowledge led to something that I am really proud of, which is at one point around, so I would say for the last 20 years, we have been interested in drug screening. Because as an oncologist, I would love to find new drugs and move them to clinical trials and have them help people. And so at one point, we decided to look for small chemical compounds that can activate this innate immune system, but independently of P53, because P53 is mutated in most cancers. And so having it regulated by P53 wasn't really helping us in a lot of cases. And so we actually discovered a molecule called TIC10 that became known as onc 201 And we discovered it in my lab and it went to clinical trials and it's been shrinking brain tumors in children and adults with a specific type of patient in these aggressive middle of the brain tumors and other types of tumors outside the brain. And so, you know, I didn't wake up one day and think, oh, okay, let me discover a drug that can shrink brain tumor. So I've lived through this. I mean, it's just a thrill. It's amazing. And I want to do more of that to make discoveries and bring them to clinical trials for the benefit of patients. And we are very busy because you know what? This year, 2023, the American Cancer Society has predicted there'll be almost 2 million new cases of cancer in the United States and over 600,000 deaths. And that is despite all of the advances that have been made, all of the breakthroughs, cancer isn't being diagnosed early in a lot of cases, and often it's diagnosed late. It becomes resistant to treatments and we just need to do better. And there's a lot of work to do because cancer isn't one thing. It's many different types of, of tumors. In fact, even among specific tumors, they tend to be different in every person. And so, you know, that's the world of precision medicine where we want to get the right drugs to what's making those tumors grow. Now, in terms of, of challenges, the field of biomedical research has been challenged for about the last 20 years. Because from 98 to 2003, the budget of the National Institutes of Health doubled. Okay. So that was a good time where research was well-funded in the United States. And then after 2003, the budgets have been flat. And so what that meant was there was growth for five years and then a whole lot of uh, new investigators basically competing for the same amount of resources. And then the budgets have more or less stayed flat for the last 20 years. And that has consequences. It's affected people's commitment to this type of career. Some have left and gone to industry. Some have gone to other careers. In my own experience, there have been some really difficult times where you have amazingly talented, diverse teams who are making progress. And one day, you know, maybe you don't have enough resources to pay their salary. And that is really hard. Like I understand when somebody's not performing and having to deal with that in a work environment. But when, when we have some of the most dedicated, talented, hardworking scientists in our labs who really ha are working toward a common goal and we don't value them and support them, that is very difficult. It's been hard to deal with. I mean, some of the ways I have dealt with it have involved uh, advocacy work for support of biomedical research. You know, my own career has been successful. I never really had to move from any university I was at, but I have moved over the last 
15 years, mostly to keep our momentum, to keep going to that next level, to ultimately keep making discoveries and to have impact on the field and to support amazing researchers and to continue to train students and really to continue to make contributions to the field. And those are hard personal choices, you know, that one makes, but I feel like those were good decisions and it's kept us going and making uh, contributions to the field. I really appreciate you sharing that. And just to double click a little bit more in the pursuit of excellence, in the pursuit of something better than what's currently out there and advancing the field, how do you balance making some of those tough decisions while still maintaining positive relationships with your colleagues, team members? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to figure out what's important to you. You have to pick your battles. You're not going to win all the battles, but you have to figure out or think about what do I really care about? What is really important? And, you know, as, as we progress in our careers, people judge us by how we spend our time and the decisions we make. That's some of that, the thought process that goes through my mind as I try to deal with difficult situations. You always try to help people too. You know, if somebody has to leave because they resources just aren't there, we help our colleagues to find the next thing that they're going to do. And that's part of it as well. Thank you. And what advice would you give to aspiring medical professionals who want to grow and develop in this field? So I think it's really important to figure out what you want to do in life. What do you want to focus on? What's important to you? I think it's important to have values and to abide by them and to believe in yourself along the way in, in your aspirations and your goals. Seek advice from others. Listen to what people tell you because often people are trying to help you who are maybe have gone through similar experiences, who maybe 10 or 20 or 30 years ahead of you or older than you and are trying to help you in some way. Um, yeah, I mean, and I think one of the challenges with what I've just said is sometimes you get just conflicting advice from people, which can, can be difficult. I mean, but that's what it is. It's advice, you know, you sort of have to figure out some things on your own. Like, what do I really want to do? But I guess the other thing I would say is there isn't just one thing. There are multiple paths to success. It's not like if I go this way, when I could have gone that way, things just aren't going to work out. I actually don't think so at all because success in a career is what you do on an ongoing basis, your persistence, your accomplishments at every step of the way. Sometimes there'll be obstacles. Sometimes there'll be setbacks, but you sort of define it for yourself over the years. If you're persistent and you keep pursuing your goals, you will find a way you will be successful and, you know, look for role models. Think role models are important. Thank you. And you mentioned before about helping others. What are some initiatives that you've been involved in or are currently involved in to give back to the community, maybe to improve healthcare access? As a physician scientist and medical oncologist in the practice of medicine, I've been involved with caring for members of the community who suffer with cancer. And as part of trying to make things better, I've, I've been a American Cancer Society volunteer for many years. So I'm an American Cancer Society research professor. 
And in that role, I have been involved with numerous community events. So as a colon cancer doctor, I'm always talking about the importance of screening. And what day is today? March 14th. We're right smack in the middle of colorectal cancer awareness month. And, you know, we have a proclamation from Governor McKee of March as colorectal cancer awareness month in the state of Rhode Island. I think representative Mia Ackerman has also been actively raising awareness about colorectal cancer. But it's not just colorectal cancer, and it's not about me or what I do in the clinic. It's about impact in the community. And so I actually came to Rhode Island uh, about four and a half years ago because I saw that my colleagues here were interested building and seeing a world-class cancer center come together in the state of Rhode Island for the people of Rhode Island. And so I've been working on that for the last four and a half years and pursuing something known as Cancer Institute designation, NCI designation. Uh, most states have NCI designated cancer centers, but Rhode Island doesn't have one. And the impact of having an NCI designated cancer center cannot be overstated. So part of getting to that goal is meeting certain standards. And why am I telling you all this when your question was, how do you help your community or what are you doing to serve the community? I'll tell you. So the National Cancer Institute mandates that cancer centers that are designated by the NCI are involved in community outreach and engagement to not only learn about the burden of cancer in the communities, but also to learn about the challenges and the obstacles that people face. And those challenges and obstacles are different in different communities for different reasons. Some are cultural, some are socioeconomic, and many obstacles to having good outcomes for all of us who are diagnosed with cancer. And so this community outreach, we're not just supposed to learn about it. We're supposed to do something about it. And we're supposed to listen to the community and address the concerns of the community and come up with solutions to problems being faced by our community members. So what does the future look like there that we would be addressing healthcare disparities, of which there are many. They've been recognized for years. COVID certainly didn't help. So we are doing that kind of work. How can we get word out to the community about the importance of cancer screening and prevention, a healthy lifestyle, avoiding behaviors and exposures that can lead to cancer? You know, we want to live healthy lives and lower our risks of getting cancer. And so part of that is communication, effective communication with the community. Part of it is developing programs that actually will improve our ability to detect cancer and to detect it early when it's curable. And Part of what we need to do is address the burdens and the barriers. You know, how can we help people afford to have certain tests or afford to have certain treatments? So a lot of this is advocacy work. And ultimately, with regard to the cancer center, we are supposed to be making discoveries, important discoveries about cancer and how we can detect it, how we can treat it, and also to develop clinical trials to bring the latest advances to members of our community. Do you know one thing I started to become really aware of 
recently. I hadn't really thought about it too much, but the fact is poor people in our community, poor people in Rhode Island don't travel to Boston or New Haven or New York to get their cancer care. They don't want to travel. They can't travel a lot of the time. And that's an important cause of disparities in some cases and something we can help. And guess what? I mean, I've been here more than four years. I think a lot of people in Rhode Island don't want to travel, even if they can travel. So we want to be able to help all of Rhode Islanders with what we're doing. And some of what we're doing with research and clinical trials involves bringing amazing people to Rhode Islands who, you know, whether they're researchers or clinicians, we're creating new jobs. The people who come are bringing others with in jobs that are research-based or clinical trial-based. And all of this is helpful to the economy here and ultimately helpful to the community. And so, you know, all of this together is part of the plan and the benefit of what we're trying to do. And, and it's, it's a huge team effort. I mean, it takes a village. And actually, I am happy to speak with you because I don't often have a chance to speak to members of the community about what we do here and the fact that we are here to help the community to, to listen to the issues and to, to actually try to do something about it. We are building community outreach efforts and we have programs in that area, but it's a work in progress. You know, we also participate in community events where some of our physicians show up and some of our researchers show up and there are opportunities. I welcome those interactions and I welcome the connections with the community and leaders within the community who can bring a certain message to members of the community. We want to be helpful. And, you know, I would say something else related to clinical trials. The history of clinical trials in the United States has been checkered. There are issues of trust and there are, there have been ethical violations and, but things have changed over the years and church brings hope and building something here in the state is good for us. And it does bring hope. I think doing research, learning more. By the way, there are certain patterns of cancer here in the state that we just don't understand. Across the board, we have higher rates, but even within our communities, some communities have higher rates even above sort of what's going on in the rest of the state. And we don't understand that. And who's going to solve those problems? Those are not simple problems, whether it's environmental factors or the history of industry or toxic waste or radon or ultrafine particles or all kinds of exposures or genetics. And it takes, it takes years to figure this out. So that's part of what we're trying to do to help the community. And we want to partner with the community to achieve our goals. And we want to be responsive to the needs of the community. Thank you for sharing. It's a wonderful mission of the Cancer Center. And you mentioned from diagnostics to access and education to build in research to building out actual solutions that will make an impact to our community. I think all of those things are going to be extremely beneficial for the community. So I'm looking forward to seeing how this continues to develop and grow and flourish even more so. Now, we kind of focused a little bit on the research side. When there are solutions or approaches that are developed, how do you think about fostering that innovation and collaborating with industry partners or other parts of the healthcare ecosystem to make it really come to life and drive a positive change? 
So I think a guiding principle here is why we do what we do. You know, we want to ultimately, we think about patients as the center of our activities. And so I think helping people is what brings us together. And uh, industry often has different goals, but I think it's fair to say everyone wants to help people ultimately. And so that is a good way to think about those interactions. Actually, since coming to Rhode Island, I mean, we, we do interact with industry. Uh, industry often will sponsor or pay for clinical trials. They will provide diagnostic tests for our patients. And, all, you know, we do work together. I mean, sometimes we work with industry to bring medications to patients who can't otherwise afford them, or we collaborate with them to carry out diagnostics. So industry often has innovation. Industry also provides a way to bring the innovation from academia to patients, ultimately. So all of that is part of part of what would work to advance the, the practice, the science, and the translation. So I'm not sure if I heard the full question, but is that what you were asking, or was there something more to it? Yeah. So you mentioned how there, the collaboration between academia research and industry is important. What are ways that you see to kind of bridge that gap or build that bridge even more? We want to see more interaction and collaboration between academia and industry. And over the years, there have been some obstacles with how academia interacts with industry. I think we need to recognize what's good about those interactions and how those interactions can ultimately help people and not just always look at the downside of conflict of interest or, you know, some of the issues that have just made it much more difficult to interact with industry. I think as a society, we need to think more about that. I am reading a book right now called, I think, Pharmacophobia, which is about this issue. And I'm trying to learn about it because, you know, it goes in cycles where sometimes advances are made, but then there are a lot of regulations and we miss opportunities, you know, and then, you know, show, show me the harm that has occurred. And it's, it's quite limited. I think most people are honorable and have integrity and aren't out there faking data, just out there trying to make money. I think there is room for collaboration between academia and industry, and I hope that there will be more of that. On the other hand, I am certainly aware of issues with industry that have made some things worse with how clinical trials are done and, and how academia is often not the major driver of the reason the trials are conducted. You know, I've certainly had difficulties obtaining drugs for clinical trials or finding support for clinical trials. So I think as a society, we need to work together to just make things a little more balanced in these interactions. I think government can help. And I, I think good people will often work together to achieve some good. Ultimately, I still believe in the goodness of people who have a common goal. And I think 
institutions can certainly create venues. You know, all the people that work in industry at some point were in academia. And so they need us. We need them. We got to work together more to do, do good. Thank you. And you mentioned earlier on around kind of filtering information to figuring out what's meaningful, how you can use it. With the hypersaturation of information in today's world, what are ways that you use to sift through the noise and find what's meaningful, find what's real? I've gained some of those skills. I suspect all of us have some of those skills. I tend to try to listen to reliable sources and I tend to want to see the primary information as opposed to hearsay and so-and-so said this and that. Interestingly, I also, and this must seem strange to some people or maybe not so strange. I mean, I try to expose myself to different points of view. And I'm one of those people who thinks that that's not so bad. I think all of us have a certain amount of common sense and hearing and being aware of different points of view. We can all filter out what we either know just cannot be true or way out there, but it's also good to be aware of it. I don't want to, you know, be an ostrich and put my head in the sand and say, well, I'm not going to listen to this because it's a lot of misinformation. I actually want to be aware of, of what is being said because, you know, we all have our judgment about things. And I think that we've learned over the last three years that things do change. We learn more. I mean, there are absolute truths, but I think anybody in science realizes we can be wrong about things and we have to learn to be humble enough to live with that. Yes, we don't know everything. In fact, the more we know, the less we know, the more we realize we don't know. And so it's just sort of my outlook on this. I think in, in science and in medicine, there are top sources or reliable sources, they tend to be the high-impact journals, generally will publish stuff that tends to be true, although there's a reproducibility uh, epidemic in science. And I'm not sure everything that's being done about that will fix it, but it's been recognized. So, yeah, so I think that we hear things, we know they may or may not always be true, but it's really the reliable sources. And eventually, even the reliable sources could be shown objectively to have been misleading. This happens. I mean, it's just part of what happens. And it doesn't mean there's evil or whatever. It just means we continue to learn about what goes on. So. You know, medicine is always evolving. We're learning so much. And there is a scientific basis. I think it's understood by the professionals in the field and why we do what we do and why we change what we do, what we do to randomize clinical trials and that show their results and things get repeated and reproduced. We have government agencies that are there to protect us. And so within, within that framework, we listen to what the authorities have to say, but sometimes you have to take some things with a grain of salt and only with time, you, you know, what the truth is about many things. I think that's the axis of truth right there time. So. Thank you again for taking the time. And one thing that I wanted to ask is you've done so much. You're doing so much now. When it's all said and done, what do you want people to know you as or for? I want to be known as somebody who has helped patients throughout their career. And I'm not just talking about the science. I'm talking about the art of medicine, compassion, advocacy, 
connecting with people and just trying to do right by them is something that I believe in. On the science side, we've plugged away at certain things. We've been persistent and we've had some notable accomplishments that are impacting on the field. Uh, and I think this is an example of what a physician scientist can do and a reason why I do what I do. It's just doing all of those things in a way that I think is fulfilling every day. I meet a lot of students who are looking for their future career. Sometimes they speak to me just to get advice. Sometimes they're applying for certain programs and I'll ask people, well, you know, why aren't you applying to medical school? Why aren't you trying to do an MD PhD program? And when I meet people who are gifted, who I think have a chance to make a difference in the world, I always encourage them. We need more physician scientists in the world and we need to support them. It's not easy. I mean, when you talk to someone like myself, I seem happy. I'm doing good work. We've accomplished a lot, but I worry about the future. And I think we need to uh, think about that as a society because there's so much regulation, so much regulatory oversight that just takes up our time so that we can't do as much as we were able to do maybe 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, just because there are a lot more hurdles in everyday life, whether it's taking care of patients or conducting research within academic institutions, I think it's sort of like big government. Eventually people recognize we got to make some things easier. I remember years ago doing your taxes was very complicated until they came up with the easy tax form or doing clinical trials was very, very complicated. But then COVID came along and people decided we need to get clinical trials going in a week. We just don't have time. And guess what? They did it. So I hope more of that can happen in the future. And all I can say is that I have really enjoyed my career. I highly recommend it to others. And it's that thrill of discovery and impact on people that really nothing comes close to that. That's a fantastic plug for any career that impacts people, which a lot of careers do. So my last question, and thank you again for taking the time from your experience in science and medicine and working with people, what do you recommend for folks who may not be in the medical field, in, but in general to find and discover a fulfilling path, whether that's in career or in life? I do think it's really important to find what, what interests you and, and what you really enjoy. I certainly have not, I mean, I have children, I haven't directed them in any way. They make up their own minds about what they're going to be doing. And, and it's a learning experience. It's those values that I was talking about and, you know, treating everyone with respect and those human interactions, listening to mentors and advisors. And I think that that's pretty important, but in the end, you have to make up your mind then about what you want to do. And you also have to balance your personal life. You know, we didn't talk about this, but you know, I have a disabled daughter who has cerebral palsy, whose life was affected really as she was being born. And, you know, we live with that every day. And when I go home, um, it's just a different world and it, it sort of gives you perspective those difficulties in life that, and, you know, we all have them, difficulties along the way that give things perspective. And remember, in the end, life is short. What we do here is limited and you got to do what you can reflect back on. And I always hear people say, nobody ever 
things back. I spent too much time with my family. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, spend time with your family, but also make sure, I guess they call it a bucket list. You should have a bucket list. Make sure you check off certain things and make sure that how you spend your time. I mean, I do give this advice, certainly to my children, you know, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, when you think back about what you were doing, just make sure you're okay with it, you know, because the only thing that happens in life is time goes by and you can go party or waste a lot of time. And, you know, I think we each need to do something that makes us happy, but also that has a positive impact on the community and on society. I think we all have that, that obligation ultimately to do some good. And so that's my view on that. Thank you very much, doctor. It's been a great time having you on the podcast and I look forward to all the amazing things that you are continuing to work on. Thank you so much. And maybe, you know, we could meet each other at some point because, you know, I can see the Wexford building from my, my window here. It's you're you're like, I don't know, 500 feet away. Yeah. Oh, right. You're right across. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Maybe we can schedule some time for coffee at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe on a day when it's not pouring with a, with, with a nor'easter coming our way. <laughs> Thank you again so much. All right. Well, Thank you as well. And it was great speaking with you. We hope that you enjoyed Dr. Eldieri's wisdom, penchant for helping others, and innate persistence. As we close this episode, let's remember the importance of balancing our personal lives with our professional aspirations and the value of making a difference in our communities. Whether you're in the medical field or any other profession, there's always room to learn, grow, and contribute to the greater good. I'm Vita Keep chasing your dreams. <laughs>